I know I keep saying this over and over, but we come this morning with Philippians to another one of those passages that are beloved and treasured. So open up with me once again to Philippians chapter 4, and we're going to look at verses 8 and 9 today, just those two verses. Actually, uh, this is the very first text that I preached from this pulpit a little bit more, eight and a half years ago, was on this particular text right here. I'll let you know, in case you have a perfect memory of that sermon, I don't, uh, and I didn't look it up to see uh, how I preached it then. I remembered some of it, but I tried not to think about that and, uh, and preach the text and, and encounter it afresh once again. So we've got this great text before us. By way of reminder, we're coming to the end of the letter, and as often is the case, in Pauline and other letters. Last week we saw that Paul exhorted the Philippians with kind of four imperatives right at the end, short, memorable, beautifully constructed, and beautifully phrased. And that kind of concluded in verse 7, but what we get here in verses 8 and 9 is, if you will, a bonus, an uh, addition to those concluding exhortations that we saw uh, last week and were so wonderful, we get these uh, for us as well. As I read them for us, I'm going to not only read this passage in Philippians, but I'm also going to read a passage from James as well, uh, because it really it really dovetails well with what Paul is talking about here. So I'm not going to comment a lot on the passage from James, but I think it's worth reading because of the similarity of thought that's going on between the two of them there. Both of these are printed in your bulletin this morning. So as I read them, hear the voice of our glorious, our almighty God as he speaks to us through his word of wisdom's peaceful practice, the Word of God. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. And now from James. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts... Do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest, harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let's pray. Gracious God, giver of every good and perfect gift, 
Father Almighty. Thank you for the gift of this word. Thank you for the gift of wisdom. Thank you for the gift of your Son. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Illumine us. Grant to us wisdom. Even grant it to us now as we consider these words that we've most of us heard many times and enjoyed and benefit from. Minister to them, to us today, where they need to be ministered to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think that we can safely say that all of us would like to be wise, or at least all of us would like to be considered to be wise. Uh, I, I think all of us would take it as a tremendous compliment if somebody came up to us and said, that was a really wise thing you said, that was a wise piece of advice that you gave to me. And if someone came up to us and said, I really appreciate your wisdom, you are a wise person, I suspect that every one of us would love to hear that. We could, li we could live off of something like that for like two years. We'd be in a good mood if somebody said something like that to us about our wisdom. But of course, the reality is, and you know this if you've looked at Scripture a little bit, is that wisdom is actually quite complicated. There are pretty profound questions about wisdom that are raised from the very beginning pages of Scripture. How do you attain it? To what end is it used? How do you practice it? And what kind of wisdom are we talking about? when we just use the word wisdom. I had us read this passage from James reflecting on wisdom, and James, perhaps here when he's writing the words that I read for us that are printed in your bulletin, perhaps he's reflecting even on the very opening pages of Scripture on the original sin, if you will, which is, if you will recall it, an attempt to be wise. It's a looking at the fruit and seeing the fruit errantly, albeit, as something that will make one wise. And so James, when, when he considers that, speaks of wisdom that is from above and wisdom that is, if you took it the other, wisdom that is from below, wisdom that he refers to as earthly, unspiritual, demonic wisdom two kinds of wisdom, at least in what James is writing, are set before us. And you can tell the difference in a couple of ways. You can tell the difference in how the wisdom is used. Is the wisdom used for self, or is the wisdom used in service to others, in humility and meekness towards others? You can tell the difference between the wisdom that comes from above and the wisdom that comes from below in terms of what the wisdom produces. Does the wisdom produce pride and jealousy and envy and competition? Is, is the wisdom producing something that is in fact a weapon allowing us to get ahead of other people? We're wiser than other people, and therefore we succeed in business. Therefore, we succeed in getting better grades than other people. Therefore, we succeed in academia more than others. That's one type of wisdom. Or does the wisdom produce meekness and peace 
And James says that's how you can tell the difference. What kind of fruit is being produced by the wisdom? Paul in Philippians is exhorting us to pursue and practice a peaceful wisdom in the God of peace. That's what's being encouraged here at the end of it. And like last week, we can say that this text is wonderfully and delightfully clear. The structure of it is great, and it's a real aid to us to be able to work through it today. And I'm going to work through it exactly the way Paul lays it out. Just to to articulate it real quickly, verse 8, Paul tells us this is what you need to think about. Verse 9, Paul tells us this is what you need to practice. And then at the end of verse 9, we're given, as we were given last week in the section of those exhortations as well, an incredible promise, the best promise that could possibly be given to us for those who will think about these things and practice the things of which Paul has spoken. I'm going to put the emphasis of the sermon today, just so you don't get nervous, on this first point. That is the one that is found in verse 8 for us, and then I'll let the other two fall into place after that. But let's talk about this idea of if there's anything worthy of praise, you have to think about these things. Let's talk about thinking. All of us know that our minds, our thinking, our thoughts, our thought processes, all of us know by our own experience that the life of our minds, when we talk about the life of faith as well, that that this is a battleground. That what takes place in here is a field of battle in which there is competition for what we think about it and how we think about the things that are taking place in this world. Paul recognizes that as well, and throughout this letter to the Philippians, he has spoken to them already numerous times about the life of the mind. So he has said to them already, chapter 3, the end of chapter 3, that they ought not be setting their minds on the things that are below, but that they should instead be heavenly-minded. They should be mindful of the Lord who will return from heaven. He has urged over and over again from the first chapter, the second chapter, and then through the beginning of this chapter, he has urged there to be agreement in mind, unity of mind between the members of the church in Philippi. He said to them at the very beginning of the letter, I am praying for your knowledge and your discernment. And then in the section that we just finished up last week, we saw that if we will practice the things that Paul has exhorted us to do, then we can expect the guarding of our mind to take place in Christ Jesus, yielding for us the fruit of peace. And so here, he addresses for the last time, if you will, the life of the mind. What takes place? What's going on inside of our thoughts? Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, then think about these things. This is a fascinating list of virtues that Paul has provided for us here. And I think we can say several things about it. The first thing that strikes us, at least these things strike me as I look at this, is how beautiful and how good is the list that is set before us here. You look at these qualities and they seem to represent 
all that is best and all that is admirable in the world. Now, please remember that when Paul or others are making a list like this, it is not intended to be exhaustive. Uh, it's intended to be representative. But these are beautiful and good things that are described by Paul here. And secondly, having said that these aren't intended to be exhaustive, the second thing that strikes us is, okay, it's not exhaustive, but it's incredibly comprehensive. When you think of what fits within those words that Paul has just described, it's hard to think of anything good that wouldn't fit within these parameters that Paul has established for us. The breadth is breathtaking. And I think our translation captures it well by the repetition of whatever uh, is honorable, whatever is those other things. And if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, I, I know whatever can be used in a diminutive uh, sense, uh, in a dismissive kind of sense, but of course this is the, maybe the King James would be better, whatsoever, whatsoever. Whatever you can think of that is honorable, then think about those things. This is expansive. It's liberating. It's liberating for the life of the mind to quote, uh, uh, and, and this was actually, there was a sermon that I preached for many of you that wasn't in this pulpit, it was over at uh, St. Mark's, and I, I referenced a beloved literary character in that sermon. This passage provides scope for the imagination. Scope for the imagination. It allows us to think about everything in all of its beauty, in all of its complexity, in all of its loveliness, and to bring that before the Lord. It's incredibly wide and deep, and it beckons us it calls us, it allows us to consider the Godhead. It allows us to think deeply about the Word of God, to think deeply about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We confessed today the Nicene Creed. Now, whenever we confess creeds, I try to vary them for this very reason that I'm about to say. Um, but when we confess creeds, it is easy for us to do that quickly and not thoughtfully, and yet the thought, the thinking, the work, the labor of the mind that went into the Nicene Creed so that you and I can, can take it as a foundation is extraordinary. It's an extraordinarily rich statement of the faith about the incarnation, about the Godhead. And and in addition to those things, and they're just representative, the Word, the incarnation, the Godhead, this invites us into the creation that God has made. It invites us on a global, a cosmic, a God-based, God-directed, doxological, peaceful treasure hunt. Just go. Go into this world. Go into the cosmos that I have made. All things, visible and invisible. And think about them. Think about the way that I have made this world. Wisdom, wisdom here is wooing us. Wisdom 
is enticing us, calling us, saying, I have these incredibly rich, delicious fruit for you to partake of. Come, come, consider the world. Consider the wisdom that God gave to Solomon. I I wanted us to read that passage today uh, from 1 Kings because I think it helps us to get an idea of what we're talking about here in terms of the breadth of what's being said. If we read that passage this morning, uh, and so obviously you're familiar with what's in 1 Kings 4, but if we hadn't read it this morning and you weren't in 1 Kings as your devotional, and I said to you, tell me about the wisdom of Solomon, I don't know how many of us would immediately come up with the hyssop that grows out of the wall or the cedar that is in Lebanon or the beasts and the birds and the reptiles and the fish. So did Solomon's wisdom include theology and thoughts of the divine? Yes, absolutely. It 100% did. Did it include justice? and how to rule well, and how to govern well. Yes, absolutely it did. We can look in Scripture. And did it include frogs? And the answer is yes, it did. Did it include moss? Yeah, it did. Little things that grow out of rock. That's not what hyssop is, but it's hard to translate plants and trees exactly. It's extraordinary in its breadth that is offered here. The third thing. That strikes me that I think can strike us, or at least would have struck the Philippians when they were sitting in church, sitting in someone's home, and this letter was being read as the sermon. What would have struck the Philippians is that this list that is contained here is so Greco-Roman. They would have listened to it and I think been surprised. Last week, I took pains to point out to us in the beloved verses 4 through 7 that the exhortations that Paul gives there have profound Old Testament roots and connections to Jewish spirituality. So if Paul says to them, rejoice, that's because rejoicing is full, you're chock full of rejoicing and commands to rejoice, for example, in the Psalter. If Paul says to them, let your gentleness be made known to all, well, that's because meekness is encouraged for the people of God. The meek shall inherit the earth. And if Paul says, have no anxiety, that's because the Old Testament says, fret not. And if Paul says, take it to the Lord in prayer with thanksgiving, that's because that's all over the Old Testament. Paul gave them Jewish spirituality to frame and understand their Christian lives. How do they walk with Christ as a congregation? And now he switches gears almost completely. This list that we've got before us today is remarkably similar to many other virtue lists that you would find in, I'll say this, in the non-Christian Greco-Roman world. Now, all of those lists have some variation to them, and this list has some variation as well. But the Philippians, if you were a Philippian and you were sitting there, if you were a college student, if you were a high school student, and you were sitting there and you were listening to this being read for the first time, it would have caught your attention 
and, and you would have leaned over to your parents and said, we studied that last week. I, we were at school, and, and they, they told us exactly about this list last week, and it's in this writer, and it's in that writer. This idea, pursuing wisdom, discussing and identifying virtue, was deeply ingrained in that world. And let me just be clear here for a moment. Uh, I've used the word virtues several times now to describe this list. In, in verse 8, that, that term that says, if there is any excellence, the, uh, the word that's translated there for excellence. In the Greek, the word is arete, which is the uh, translation of the word for virtue in the Greek world as a whole. And uh, in the Latin, in the Vulgate, uh, the word there is virtus, which is a virtue in and of itself, and yet is uh, also the collective term for the virtues. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about virtues. And so, it, again, if we're Philippians, we kind of read this and say, Paul, what are you doing? What's happening here? Uh, is Paul equating worldly, Hellenistic, Greek, moralism with a life in Christ. So, so you'd be a little bit puzzled and, and you'd kind of look and you'd say, so Paul, is what you're saying is that if you're, or whether you are a Greek philosopher or a Christian theologian, are you saying everybody is pursuing the same thing? Everybody's pursuing wisdom and honor. This list is a Greek-Roman list. Is that what you're saying? That all this looks exactly the same. You can almost imagine somebody saying, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. I thought you just told us that we were citizens of a heavenly kingdom and that we had to follow the way of that heavenly kingdom which is different than the kingdom of which we're a part of here, than the Roman Empire of which we are a part here. Why are you now espousing the values and virtues of the earthly kingdom. Why are you giving me this list? I've heard this list before. What gives? And the answer to that question is, I, I, we're, we're going to pause right on that for a moment and say, what are you doing here? We have to be very careful in how we respond to this. What Paul would say, if that question were raised, is that everything that he has been speaking about in the letter to this point and in his time with them, he has been speaking about as an overflow and outworking of life in Christ. Right? Remember that? We've seen that already in this chapter a number of times. Whatever he has commanded them to do, he has commanded them in the Lord. In the Lord. This is about your relationship with Christ. These virtues emanate from the eternal, personal word. These words aren't just words. They emanate from the one who became incarnate, from the living Christ. They are not free-floating, they're not ideas, they are not independent terms that exist somewhere, independent ideals that exist somewhere, where they are not disembodied concepts to be self-applied 
as good morals and good principles for living. They flow from and are exemplified in the humble, the humiliated, crucified Lord Jesus Christ. To the Greeks, that's foolishness. That's just dumb. To say that these things are from this man and the result of this man, this wise teacher, is that he was crucified. Well, he wasn't very wise. And it's foolish that you would exalt in a crucified person as the Lord of all. For the Greeks, wisdom lifted you above others. It lifted you up. But the wisdom of God, Philippians, allows us to consider others more important than ourselves. For the Romans, it was a power tool. For the Christian, it allowed you to serve other people and care for other people. So they're utterly different. They're utterly different in their source and in their goal. But as it turns out, Greeks and Romans, Hebrews and Americans live in a world created by the Father of lights, built by him, as Proverbs 3 tells us, built by him in wisdom and in knowledge and understanding, founded on wisdom, established by understanding, and filled with knowledge. Uh, I know a lot of you here have traveled and had the opportunity to travel to Europe. Have you ever been to Greece? Have you been to Italy? Croatia? Bulgaria? Ukraine? Turkey? You ever been to any of those? If you have, I know that one of the things that you did while you were there is you visited the ancient Greek-Roman sites. You wanted to see the ruins of that ancient civilization. But all of humanity, no matter where we live on this earth, all of humanity inhabits a world in which the ruins of a perfect creation are still around. They can still be seen. You can look at the creation of this world and you can also then look in your heart and mind and its reaction to the creation of this world and see the ruins of an ancient, beautiful, perfect civilization. It's then unsurprising, unsurprising that the inhabitants of such a world, the inhabitants who can see the ruins or the inhabitants who are there would stumble into loveliness and honor and justice, even if they don't have the ability to source it or explain it. They can look at it and they can say, that's good. 
It's commendable. It's admirable. It's just. It's lovely. The Greeks and the Romans, they're poets, they're philosophers, they're moralists, they're mathematicians, they're sculptors, they're architects. In their pursuit of excellence, they stumbled into an unknown God. They bumped into him. Couldn't source it. Couldn't make sense of it. But they bumped into him. They bumped into his world. They bumped into his beauty. They bumped into his principles. An architect. An author of profound beauty and profound wisdom was in the vestiges of their own world. That's what they bumped into. And thus, the lesson of Paul, don't throw out Archimedes with the bathwater. Look that up if that reference doesn't make any sense. Don't throw out Archimedes with the bathwater. Now, we could use these phrases here to show, and we ought to, why we ought to read great literature, why we ought to garden and know the names of plants and the way they work and the way that they grow, or why you can set any number of fantastic and beautiful words to the end of Beethoven's Ninth, whether it be Ode to Joy, or whether it be what we sang this morning, God all nature sings thy glory, music, art, the fruitful garden, all of these things are the labors of his hand and bring glory to the maker. I didn't teach my kids growing up, uh, uh, God, all ma- God all nature sings thy glory. Uh, I taught them joyful, joyful. That was, the, that was the version of that in the older Trinity hymnal. And it expressed this world, all thy works with joy surround the earth and heaven express thy ways. Field and forest, vale and mountain, flowery meadow, flashing sea, chanting bird and flowing fountain, call us to rejoice in thee. That's what these are doing. These are allowing us to see the beauty of the world and not chuck out things that may have been stumbled upon by others. Even the terminology that they might use. Let me, let me give you two recent examples. Those are older examples. One uh, TV station recently has been showing two movies back-to-back. Uh, it must be Tom Hanks Festival Week. I don't know uh, why they're showing these back-to-back. Uh, but they're showing Sully, which is a movie that I'm sure uh, many of you saw and know the story of uh, Sullenberger and the landing of the plane uh, on the Hudson in New York, an incredible story. Uh, and then the other one that they've been showing with it is Bridge of Spies. Now, that's a little bit older. I don't know if you saw the movie Bridge of Spies uh, or not. But both of them are based on true characters, on true stories that are there. And as a Christian, I can watch these, and I can appreciate these, and I can appreciate the qualities, the virtues of the characters portrayed, the characters that are represented there. 
and I can sit next to a non-Christian friend and call these things commendable and expect the non-Christian sitting next to me to see it as excellent as well, as commendable as well. Not always, not without discernment, not without speaking about it, but there's something there that we can both recognize because we inhabit the same world of ruins. Now, as a Christian, I take it a step further, right? I don't, always say, I don't only say, praise that man, that was an incredible man. I say, praise that God who made that man. And as a Christian, I don't just say, well, man up, uh, virtue up, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do these. I say, God, help me. Spirit of the living God at work within me, help me to develop these things. So there are distinct differences, but Paul's command is this. There's a lot of excellence in the Word and in the world. Be discerning, especially when you're talking about things in the world, and think about it. And think about it. Of course, which leads, and I will be much more brief here, which leads to the next verse and its exhortation to practice it, to do it. Verse 9 says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Critical and wise thinking is required. In particular, you have to have the transmission of the faith, and that's when Paul talks about here, learned and received. That's kind of rabbinic language for what a pupil does and what a teacher does. The the pupil learns and receives. It's almost catechetical in its nature. I receive what you have said, but it's never only that. It's not just the transfer of knowledge. Paul says, you've heard it and you've seen it in me. In me, Paul says, you've seen a man in Christ walking joyfully the cruciform life. I'm not talking to you, Paul, from someplace nice and comfortable and beautiful. I'm describing for you the beauty of the earth from a prison cell. Don't forget the context. That's where I'm talking about this. We're not in a really comfortable room that's heated. We're not in the academy somewhere. I'm in prison. And I'm telling you to think about whatever's excellent, whatever's commendable, whatever is worthy of praise. And now, practice it. Thinking is good, but it's not enough. Feeling encouraged or feeling compunction, feeling guilt. It's good, but it's not enough. Spectatorship in the Christian life is not enough. You are not an audience right now, and I am not a performer. We are the people of God being instructed by the Word of God to hear the Word of God, to think about it, and practice it. That's what's happening to us as a congregation. Woe to us if you think you're a spectator and I think I'm a performer. Biblical wisdom is always applied wisdom. Practice these things. So what have you been thinking about and not doing? There's a danger here for faithful Christians. Here's the danger. The danger is you come to church. Let's say you come to church every single week. You hear the Word of God preached. 
you come to Sunday school, you hear the Word of God taught in Sunday school. You have your personal, maybe your family devotions, and you read the Word of God there, and you contemplate the Word of God there. Maybe you're part of a small group Bible study, and you guys talk about the Word of God together. Here's the danger. The danger is that can become so familiar to us. The hearing can become so familiar None of us think about what do we do as a matter of fact, based upon it. That we don't spend the time saying, Lord, help me to apply the word that I've either read today, that I've heard preached today, that we've talked about in our small group. There's a danger for the faithful Christian here not to practice these things, to be lulled to sleep, to not make some effort to apply the word. But if we will if we will think about these things, if we will practice these things, then the promise is given. Last week, at the end of verse 7, we saw the promise that was given there, and the promise was that the peace of God would be ours. The peace of God. Rest for our souls is another way that it's spoken of in the Old Testament and spoken of by Jesus. You will find rest for your souls. That is the promise that is given to us there. And you kind of look at that, and Paul's given us that promise. If we would follow that track, those imperatives, how do you get something better than rest for your souls? Is there a promise that could be better than the peace of God? And of course, the answer is yes, the God of peace. The God of peace will be with you in the Lord. Wisdom is not depersonalized. Thinking is not abstract. Practicing and doing is not detached, and it's not lonely. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen it. We've seen His glory. We've seen the grace and the truth. And he, the Prince of Peace, promised, I will always be with you. To the end of the age, I will be with you. Wisdom is peacefully practiced with Jesus and with the congregation. And what could be better than that? What could be better than the promise of the God of peace, the gift and the giver given to us? Let's pray. Lord, our minds are indeed a battlefield. We all know how our thoughts run all through our heads, sometimes thinking in directions before we even recognize what's taking place. Guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And then fill us, fill us with thoughts about things that are excellent and things that are praiseworthy and true and pure and just. And then help us to practice these things. Thank you for the promise of your presence. May it be for us great delight great comfort and strength as we seek to live this life before you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.